my name is Tom Dunn. I have the great privilege of running a technology-based finance company that normally has me on the road or in the air to any one of more than 50 countries in which Orbion does business around the world. COVID-19 has dramatically altered this world. In this series of podcasts, I hope to shed some light on different aspects of the pandemic's effect. Generally, the lens will be pulled back and a wider perspective brought into view. But the aim will always be to provide expert commentary that will shine a torch on a strand of particular interest. For this piece, I have the greatest pleasure to be joined from her home in Suffolk by Dr. Judith Tyson of the Overseas Development Institute. After a long career in investment banking in both London and Tokyo, Judith joined the ODI as a research fellow in their International Economic Development Group. In this role, she is engaged with this global independent think tank that for over 60 years has been providing research and expert advice to governments and institutions around the world. It is to this development agenda that we will turn today. In particular, how is the pandemic affecting both developing nations as well as the development aid agenda of more advanced countries? Judith, it's a real pleasure to have you today. It's uh, great to be able to chat to you, um, albeit at this uh, very distant uh, approach that we're having to take today. I sort of wanted to start with a, a broad question around the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. It's, kind of, it's substantially non-discriminatory um, in its massive impact upon both healthcare and economics around the world. But as with the question of political leadership that I discussed last time with Archie Brown, are we already seeing differences in the economic effects of the pandemic as we compare the OECD countries versus the developing world? Um, I think you, you ask a, a very interesting question because, of course, as you, as you point out, the health uh, emergency is, you know, is completely non-discriminatory and it really doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor or where you are internationally. We've seen it spread right across the globe. But the economic implications are very different. Um, and in particular, of course, in a, advanced economies, we're seeing an ability to respond to the health needs very, very rapidly. Uh, and we're also seeing uh, enormous levels of uh, fiscal spending to support the economy. And what makes, um, uh, you know, developing countries is very different is that, of course, they're much smaller, they're much more undiversified, but in particular, there's not um, uh, uh, an ability for the government to respond in the way um, to support economic and health um, health problems. And so the way that the, the pandemic, and particularly the economic effects of the pandemic, are, um, are panning out are quite different and probably more severe uh, than they will be for advanced economies. Within, I mean, the, the developing world is obviously a very broad term. Let's, if we split it down and kind of, you know, focus on two main blocks, one being Africa, the other being Asia, are you seeing differences in the way that the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting these two regions, kind of considered as separate regions? Um, I think it's yeah, it's coming. You know, the, the effects are, are, are materializing very differently. And if we think about the channels where developing economies are being are being affected, of course, there's multiple channels, which is one of their huge challenges. And so that you, we're seeing um, effects, of course, on, on commodity prices that have collapsed. We're seeing uh, downstream effects on global value chains, uh, particularly, of course, in the manufacturing sector, uh, finance. Um, you know, the level depends on the level of dependency on international finance in particular, and also things like remittances, which are very important for some economies 
economies, but not for others, and tourism. So it really depends um, where countries are um, uh, exposed across that spectrum of, of uh, risks. And if we compare Asia with Africa, for example, Asia, of course, has had huge successes in recent decades in engaging in global value chains. Um, and, you know, they range right across the spectrum at the moment from you know, high end value chains that maybe we see in Northeast Asia through to uh, low end high um, high labour intensive uh, industries like textiles or footwear, for example, in uh, some of the poorer nations. And now we're seeing a retraction in demand uh, from advanced economies. That, that is the main, the primary channel where, where they're seeing effects. And we're already seeing that materialising. So, um, for example, in Bangladesh, uh, it's estimated 4 million workers have already lost their jobs in the textile industries. If you compare that with a with Africa, um, they they uh, you know for uh, of course uh, in a negative way, but in this context in a protective way, have not got as far down the engagement in globalization as Asia. So some of their main channels are things like commodity prices, uh, and that of course is is particularly important for selected countries like Nigeria with oil or Zambia with copper, where their um, uh, revenues, in particular their fiscal revenues, are being totally hammered by the collapse in prices there, um, and also some other select things like. Um, for example, tourism, particularly in um, uh, Eastern Africa, that's a major um, industry, a uh, major employer and key for foreign earnings. And of course, that the, the outlook for that is very poor. Yeah, we're only three or four months into the pandemic. It's probably you know too soon. People are just addressing kind of how to deal with the situation today. But are you able to see any signs yet as to how countries in in Asia or in Africa may start to adapt their economies or institutions to address post-pandemic conditions? Is there already any guidance as to how that might start to happen? There's certainly a lot of discussion around it, but I think a lot of it right now is really addressing the acute uh, problems that we're facing. And interestingly for Africa, uh, for example, as well, the health emoji doesn't seem so bad. Of course, it may may change very rapidly, but the level of infections and deaths is actually relatively low. But the economic effects uh, are only just starting to um, uh, become materialised, and so are the policy responses. So the response we've seen, for example, is the World Bank and the IMF have been calling for debt forgiveness. Uh, they've provided emergency finance. But what happens next, I think, is very uncertain, including, you know, how governments will respond. And, uh, you know, they're going to be in a position once the, you know, the initial um, acute phase is over of being in a very difficult situation where they have very few policy levers. Um, as I mentioned, the, you know, the effects on fiscal revenues um, from commodities, but also of course from taxation, for example. Um, and we're talking about economies where we have very large informal sectors as well. Um, so it's I think it's difficult to see. Um, some speculation might be that we see a greater focus on building of national economies or regional economies and trying to reduce the um, extent of dependence on global finance and global trade. Uh, we may see um, uh, you know, uh, greater focus on trying to diversify economies, which has long been a goal in Africa in particular. Uh, but you know, achieving these things is tough. Let's, let's switch from the, if you like, the developing countries themselves and now turn the focus a little bit more towards the um, the aid agenda of the OECD countries. Um, and it, yeah. it strikes me that sort of over the last 20 years, we've seen um, donors such as the UK and the EU, kind of at one, le- at one extreme, have been spending meaningful shares of their GDP on 
social problems, social programs, I should say, that almost explicitly disavow any reciprocal economic benefits. But by contrast, you've got somebody like China that has used its Belt and Road Initiative, as well as its development programs across Africa, to advance a more commercially balanced set of objectives. Is this, does this, is this seem like a, a reasonable uh, characterization? Yeah, I think that is. And I think what, what's interesting about you say is, is these kind of trends have actually, you know, predate the crisis, um, the COVID crisis by quite a lot. And in particular, uh, some, you know, previously Western economies were very focused on uh, sort of unfettered aid for humanitarian purposes or for really supporting social uh, welfare in developing countries. So things like education, uh, healthcare, these type of things. And we've seen a sort of gradual reorientation to uh, countries actually wanting to also see their their uh, national interests being supported. And, you know, there's been some support for that. And particularly, uh, you know, African governments, for example, have been calling for, you know, as, as they say, we don't want a handout, we want a hand up. So, uh, you know, talking about building trade uh, linkages, for example, which, of course, benefit both countries. Um, but, um, you know, definitely we've seen that as well coming, I think, from a national uh, national interest as well. And, you know, what some people see as, um, you know, a, a decline in the uh, level of international cooperation coming from the US, of course, under the Trump administration, but also uh, from the UK under Brexit. And so some countries are, are looking to have a sort of, you might call it a dual goal of doing good for developing countries, but also uh, addressing our national interests as well. Yeah, and, and so how do you think that COVID-19 is going to impact these agenda? Um, I mean, are the UK and the EU going to see their development aid budgets kind of, one of a better word, crowded out by domestic fiscal and political priorities? I think it's a really interesting, particularly uh, for countries like the UK, because the UK, as, you, as you, I'm sure you know, under the International Development Act, have uh, aid fixed as a, a percentage of GDP, or 0.7% of GDP. And, a, and that aid budget is explicitly linked to addressing poverty. So we're kind of locked in like that. And when we're seeing the situation that we've got now, where we're seeing uh, you know, unprecedented fiscal spending um, in advanced economies, uh, which, of course, is going to be, be seen in our national debt, and um, Perhaps, you know, concerns about our own uh, economic situation, including, uh, of course, uh, not only our, our uh, economic support, but uh, our social services. I think that it's difficult to see any situation which there won't be more pressure on those already building trends to uh, uh, maybe reduce the aid budget or to see it, you know, being much more clearly linked to uh, development of national interests. And so I guess then on the other side, do you think that we're going to see China try and consolidate its position, um, both as a result of the, I guess, advantageous commercial position that it's already negotiated in, in, in much of its uh, development agenda over the last 15 years or so, um, but also by dint of the potential vacuum that's going to be created by others withdrawing from, from, this, from this arena? Yeah, you know, China's sort of had a really the last uh, dec decade, really two decades. They've been very carefully uh, developing uh, soft political uh, relationships uh, right across Asia and also across Africa and using finance and so public finance for infrastructure but also building commercial links including with private firms from China and so that again that trend I think it's interesting to think about what will happen they're already one of the biggest bilateral 
donors uh, globally through those channels. And in Africa, they're providing 20% of all finance uh, currently. So, you know, as the tide goes out on other donors, you can't um, help but think that they will uh, continue that trend. Now, of course, there's a question mark, are they going to be able to afford it? Because they're also going to need to be addressing their domestic problems, which are quite severe. Um, but I, I think um, with China, there's two big differences. One, of course, is that their, you know, the level of state support for economic and political networks is always huge, and it never does to underestimate them. But um, also, they always take a very long-term view of these relationships, and so um, I think that they will continue uh, that type of support. I don't think we'll see it retracted, and I think actually they'll they, maybe they'll delay it or so it. But I think those long-term uh, policy goals that they have of, of building networks uh, on a bilateral basis and possibly as the you know with a um, an aspiration to become the new global leader mm. uh, will continue so so finally before we uh, before we close today uh, Judith cast your mind over the thoughts that you might have on the way that covid-19 is is maybe going to impact support for some of the supranational institutions that have been such an important component um, of kind of global economics and international relations really for the past 70 years or so. Um, as a crisis, this seems to demand a global response, um, but we're already seeing kind of protective pressures that were already building with some of the nationalism agenda that were growing um, and using the pandemic now as a scapegoating of supranational organizations. How do you think they're going to respond? I think they, they will continue to do exactly what they've done before and but I think that will be a big mistake if we wanted to sum up one word about you know how we might see things unfolding with COVID-19 it's probably deglobalization and uh, many of the things that we've we've seen as assumption of um, the way forward in the last two decades may well be uh, questioned. So things like the reliance on international trade and global value chains, uh, the uh, openness to cross-border capital flows, uh, the openness, of course, to international travel. And we're seeing, as you as you point out, something some aspects of that are quite hysterical. So you know, conspiracy theories about that coming out of the U.S. administration about. China, uh, which are ridiculous, but I think there will also be a refocus if there's um, a, a big um, a downturn in prosperity in rich countries to uh, addressing our own problems first. Judith, thank you very much indeed. It's been a real pleasure to chat to you this morning. Tom, it's, it's been a pleasure uh, to speak to you as well, as always. Thanks very much. Thank you.